Man, what powerful truth we just sang a moment ago. I hope that stirred your hearts. Um, let's, let's do this. Let's pray again. I just want to pray. That's cool, you guys. Gracious God, I pray now as we study your word, uh, Lord, that we would listen and that we would tune in and that uh, the Spirit would move in our hearts. And for some, this may be the first time we meet you, Christ, and for others, it may be a continual growth. And so Lord, I pray that your word, sharper than any two-edged sword, would Lord, do what it does. And uh, Lord, I, I'm grateful for all those that are here. This would help me to do the undoable, and that is to rightly divide your word in a way that is honoring to you, knowing that we can only do that uh, under the strength and in the power of the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, we ask you to be with us today, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 2010, um, there was a, uh, a mine disaster in the nation of Chile. Uh, you may be familiar with this. If not, I'll never forget it. I was old enough to remember uh, it day by day. Um, it was an incredible story. So these miners went to work one day, and the mine collapsed, and they were stuck uh, nearly half a mile in the earth for 69 days. Um, in fact, I want to read a brief excerpt from the rescue uh, from an old news and observer for all of you uh, folks from Raleigh. Um, the miners made the smooth ascent inside the Phoenix capsule, 13 feet tall, barely wider than their shoulders, and painted in the white, blue, and red of the Chilean flag. It had a door that stuck occasionally, and some wheels had to be replaced, but it worked exactly as planned. Beginning at midnight Tuesday, and sometimes as quickly as every 25 minutes, the pod was lowered nearly half a mile to where 700,000 tons of rock, rock had collapsed on August 5th and entombed the men. Then after a quick pep talk from rescue workers who had ascended into the mine, a miner would climb in, make the journey upward, and emerge from a manhole into blinding light. The rescue was planned with extreme care. The miners were specifically monitored by video on the way up for any sign of panic. They had oxygen masks and dark glasses to protect their eyes and, and sweaters for the jarring transition from the subterranean swelter to the chilly desert air. As they neared the surface, a camera attached to the top of the capsule showed a brilliant white piercing the darkness not unlike what many accident survivors describe when they have near-death experiences. The miners emerged looking healthier than many had expected and even clean-shaven. Several thrust their fists upwards like prize fighters, and Mario Sepulveda, the second to taste freedom, bounded out and led his rescuers in a rousing cheer. Welcome to life, Panera told Victor Segovia, the 15th miner out. On a day of superlatives, it seemed no overstatement. So as I read through this article, I highlighted a couple words that stuck out to me. You'll see them on the screen. I highlighted the word entombed, the phrase into light, the word freedom, and the phrase welcome to life. And so all of these words, as any good pastor, should take my mind to the gospel. But I pray that it does you this morning. Um, if you're not familiar with the word gospel, that's okay. You will be by the end of today because uh, we're going to make it really accessible. Uh, but when, when we're told in the Bible to keep our minds on eternal things, and not on things of this earth, what I want to start out doing this morning is reminding us all here that although this story was incredible, it will not, nor will it ever be, the greatest rescue story, the greatest story of freedom that has ever been told. In fact, in comparison to what Christ has done in my life and in many lives in this room, it pales in comparison. So, so back to the miners, right? Here they are. They go to work. You go to work, hopefully, or your work is school. That's okay. Or my wife, you know, she does even more difficult work than I do at the home with my children. 
Um, trust me, if you know them, you would know that's true. Um, and so here they are, they go to work and they're simply doing their job. They're minding their own business. You know, maybe they had their oatmeal before they left that morning or whatever they, their normal routine is. Maybe they forgot their coffee and they're a little cranky. Um, and then all of a sudden, boom, it happened. The mind collapsed. They're stuck in there for 69 days. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe what had been going through my mind in that, in that moment. And so here, so here they are, they have little to no light, little to no food, no overnight bag. They didn't get any uh, reward points for this one. Uh, and they were fighting for their lives. In fact, they, they would write that they're fighting for, uh, against sickness, right? Stale air. There's not any fresh air down there. Um, it's super hot. People are getting sick. Um, I remember on this side of things, they literally televised this like day by day by day. And so the entire world was watching. And I remember thinking on numerous days, even with our church praying, like, how are they going to get these guys out of there? Like, this is not like, this is a big deal. And so um, this well-designed and well-orchestrated rescue was, was, was put together. And then they started. And all the miner had to do when that t- capsule lowered down, all that miner had to do was step in, right? Put on the goggles. Okay, you're, you're getting me on the details. But step in. That's all they had to do. Well, let me ask you this question. And I'm going to go ridiculous on you. But... What if the miner wasn't willing to get in? What if, what if he or she looked at the rescuer and said, I'm good. I got it. I've, I've been down over 69 days. I've worked out this incredible plan and I'm going to do it. I'm not worried about it. You know, you take these folks out and, and I'm not, I'm not going to accept your help. Would that person have lived? Of course not. Like that's absurd. And, and look, I'm playing on the absurdity of, of the scenario that there's nothing that any of those trapped miners could have done to have rescued themselves. Nothing. And in what a situation that seemed like had no hope, the only solution was for something to take place outside of themselves, for a rescuer to show up on the scene and save the day, right? So in this scenario, the first thing that needed to happen was the problem needed to be identified. Generally, that's not always the case in dire situations like this. But secondly, there needed to be a rescuer, Someone to step in and save the person that's been lost. And that person has to admit their hopeless state and step in. Now, I know it's pretty easy for us to look at this huge incident, this disaster, and and think, yeah, of course I need help in those times of hopelessness. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I'm definitely going to do it. But the whole world knew of this situation. And in short, nobody would have not accepted help. But, but I want to bring your mind to a situation that I think we find in the scriptures um, because there's a much worse predicament that we all find ourselves in, and it's our human condition. So God created us in his image, but then man sinned, and that sin separated us from God. It's this incredible chasm that we cannot breach without Christ. Our human condition before a holy God is a sinner deserving judgment. And the only way the situation can be corrected is by the Savior, Jesus, entering in on our behalf. And this Savior must be a particular Savior. can't just be anybody. And in fact, the scriptures teach that there's only one of those saviors. Look, look at um, John 8. I'm going to read it again. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. The first thing I want you to see is the truth will set you free. The word provides you freedom. Now, the first question that may come out in your mind is, what is the word? What's he talking about? The first implication here is that prior to this truth doing something, the hearer, those that are listening, are in a state of bondage. They're in a state of being trapped. They're shackled. They're unable to live free. Some would argue much like the life of a prisoner of war. They have no freedoms. In fact, many would say that's not life at all. We're at the will of the enemy and we need an ally. It's an implied picture of a desperate situation. So what is the truth? Number one, God's word is truth. The Bible, the scriptures, God has given us the scriptures. It holds the message of the gospel in its pages. It tells the story of the fall of humanity and then all throughout the history, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, what God is doing to save his people. You can look at the history of of Israel. They sinned, God sent a judge and saved them. They sinned, God sent a judge and saved them. Right? They sinned. Pharaoh took them over. God sent Moses and saved them. And then before you know it, they're complaining again and sinning again. Like, does that sound familiar? Does your life resonate with that? Of course. If you're honest with yourself, yes. I don't do everything right all the time. So God's word tells us that. And it's this incredible story that is woven through the pages of the scriptures that points all the way to Jesus. It was always the plan for Christ to set us free. John 1 1 says this. It says that the word was God. The word is Jesus. If you abide in Christ, the scriptures say he will set you free. This is not a trick statement. It's very simple. Christ must do the work. And we must abide in him. Our work is not sufficient. Only his is. It's just that. It's just that simple doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like. So if we are abiding in Christ, the scripture tells us that we are his disciples. He says that. He references, you are not my disciples. What does he mean? He means you don't believe me. You haven't seen your sin. You you think that you're going to be okay because of your lineage. And we'll get into that in just a minute. A disciple, just quickly defined as a follower and or a student, of a mentor or or a teacher or a wise figure. More specifically to the passage here, a disciple that he is referencing is a follower of Jesus Christ. That's a great way for a Christian to define themselves. A follower of Jesus Christ. If we truly abide in Christ, then we are truly disciples of Christ. And this has an unavoidable outcome. Fruit. You're going to have fruit doesn't mean you're always going to do what's right, but more often than not, your life will have fruit. It makes no sense to say that I'm a disciple or a follower of Christ if the consistency of my life proves otherwise. So if the majority of the things that characterize me and the the majority of things that I push my passions towards are not of Christ, we see a a challenge there, right? There's a contradiction. Simple truth. If you abide in Christ... You are truly his disciple. And if you are truly his disciple, then you will know the truth and you will believe the truth. And that truth will set you free. You'll see it on the screen. This truth is the work of Christ on your behalf, 
on my behalf. And this truth is the only truth that can set us free. Now, here's the natural question. And maybe you're asking this, the Jews ask this, from what do we need to be saved from? Look back at the passage. After he says the truth will set you free, they said, verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? I mean, that's a pretty natural response. They're like, what are you talking about? Now, I want to give you a little um, context here, a uh, little history lesson. So the Jews listening don't understand what Jesus is saying. They simply respond that the fact that the Jewish nation has never been enslaved by anyone. What, what are you talking about? Now, I want, I want to be clear. They are likely not referring to being physically enslaved. Because in case you are wondering, at this point in history, the Jews have pretty much been enslaved by every major power in the history of humankind. I mean, legitimately. Syria, Assyria, Egypt, Greece, Rome. I mean, on and on and on and on. And they have, I mean, they have been enslaved for the bulk of their existence. Okay? What, what they're saying to him is more on the spiritual side of things. They're, they're, like, they're like, well, you've always had spiritual freedom to an extent. Maybe we've been in bondage and been slaves and not liked our predicament, but we've always been able to practice as Jews. And our Jewishness, if I can create a word, is what our security is. What are you talking about? We're God's chosen people. Isn't that what the scripture says? They're leaning on their spiritual freedom and privilege instead of leaning on the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus' statement would have been offensive as it implies that their authentic lineage leading to their assumed spiritual condition because of that lineage was either being questioned or was insufficient. That's why I wrote it. It's a big statement. I'm going to read it again. Jesus' statement would have been offensive as it implies that their authentic lineage leading to their assumed spiritual condition because of that lineage was either being questioned or was insufficient. And furthermore, by the way, their response and disbelief immediately showcases their unwillingness to accept Jesus' teaching. We'll see in verse 37, he says, my word has no place in you. They're demonstrating that. Here's Jesus, the Savior, saying these things, and they're not receiving it. Uh, well-known commentator Andreas Kostenberger says the Jews' ethnic presumption blinded them regarding their need for a Savior. In other words, I've always been spiritually free to worship as a Jew, and so have my ancestors, and so is their ancestors. We are God's chosen people. Surely we are right before God. We're not like everybody else. We're way better. Surely, surely we're right before God. Why do we need freedom, Jesus? It's almost like you could hear them like, what? Who is this guy? Who are you to tell me? You know nothing about me. Sounds pretty familiar in our culture, right? There's a number of tangible detractors. I want to try to take this a little practical in our own lives in, in, in modern days. There's a lot of tangible detractors, I think, that often prohibit the clarity of our personal conditions. Number one, have you ever asked this question in your own life? Maybe not, um, what do I need freedom from? But we live in America, and so for the most part... No one or should be allowed to infringe upon our personal rights. We do what we want. We go where we want. We buy what we want. It's instantaneous. Like right now, I can say, hey, man, I need a $10 cable. And, you know, Sierra, since she smiled first, could jump on her phone and order it right now. Like she does what she wants. Right? 
We worship how we want. And I'm not saying there's nobody out there trying to come against Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. But we're sitting right here in the freedom to worship as we want. So because the majority of this country lacks the personal knowledge of what it's like to be physically or spiritually enslaved in regards to being able to worship, there's just no, we have no concept of that. We've not really seen the hard that some of these people that we can look back on in our ancestry have seen. So, so that's one detractor. We kind of walk around like we want. We do what we want. We go where we want. Satan loves that. He loves the fact that we don't even pay attention to that because it detracts from where we really are. Materialism is a subtle distraction, right? Money makes the world go round. We're distracted by stuff, cars and big houses and money and whatever, what, it, what the things that we want, right? From what do I need freedom from? I do what I want. I buy what I want. And I fear that the same question that is being asked by these cultural Jews is the same question that many in our world today are asking. I don't feel enslaved by anything. I'm in control of me. The power to control me comes from within myself. I don't think the bad things I do are wrong control me. And I certainly don't think they're going to control the outcome of my life. Jesus, what do I need freedom from? And maybe you're a Christian here today and you're thinking, you know, that's, that's actually a really good point. Because sometimes when I want to share the gospel with someone, it's hard. It, it can often be harder to share the gospel with someone that feels like they got it all together. Right? I mean, you, we're really good at posturing. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it. You probably are too. Ultimately, the problem for those that do not have a relationship with Christ is that they are spiritually blind. Matthew 15, 14 says, Jesus, in fact, Jesus, so let me just summarize it. I won't read it all. Jesus responds to the disciples when they mention that the Pharisees were offended to what he's saying. So he, he responds and says, leave them alone. They're blind guides. And in essence, if the blind falls the blind, you'll fall in a hole or a pit. That's stupid. Don't do that. They're spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's stupid. It's foolishness to those who are spiritually blind. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A well-known Puritan, Andrew Murray, said, One great power of sin is that it blinds men so that they do not recognize its true character. Satan wants to subtly distract and convince us that everything is all right. I've got a good job. My family's healthy. I've got a good degree. I've got a nice house. I've got some money in my account. I certainly don't go without food. All is well. And it's not that these things are bad, but all of these things can stand in favor of subtly distracting us from our actual human condition. Here's the bottom line. Every person, every person that has ever been born is spiritually shackled and needs a savior. There are no exceptions. This is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter culture, race, creed. It doesn't matter. Class, stature, all the buzzwords of our day, right? This is the great equalizer. Look at verse 34. Sin enslaves all men and women apart from Christ. Verse 34 says this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, what is he talking about? Glad you asked. Hopefully we can work through this together. I'm going to give you two terms that you should see up there uh, that will help us understand this. Number one, governs is the first term. 
Your entire life is governed by sin prior to the gospel. This means that sin exercises continuous sovereign authority over you and that it exerts a type of determinate nature over your life. Sin is going to be your natural tendency. It is going to be what you choose almost always when given the opportunity apart from a relationship with Christ. In the natural human condition, even if you do, you know, it's funny, I've read so many things like this, even in the psych, psych, psychology world, even when a lot of times people do good things, there's still always a, a, a personal motivation behind it, you know? Like, like even to the depths of our heart, when we do good things for someone, they're good. There's almost always a personal motiv- motivation behind that. And, and it, it, we're not honest with that. About our, we're not honest about that with ourselves oftentimes, right? J- Jesus knows everybody. He, he doesn't know just what you do. He knows what you will do and what you have done. He knew all that on the cross. He knew what you will think and what you have thought. He knows all of your motivations. He is, according to Colossians, the one that has created all things. And he sustains all things. The author, the omega, the beginning and the end. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, a couple, a couple things I'll say from it. We have now been delivered or transferred. We have redemption. So this verse implies that prior to this deliverance happening, where were we? We were in, as the scriptures say, the domain of darkness. In the Greek, it, it is literally the authority of the darkness is how you would translate it. In other words, we are controlled and governed and we are under the authority of this domain of darkness. That's the spiritual condition prior to Christ. This, this verse in Colossians also implies the necessity of deliverance or, or this necessity of like a, a transference or redemption. Prior to the rescue, whether we're willing to believe it or not, our position before a holy God is one of terror and doom. And we don't like to talk about that a lot. But I got to tell you, just in my own personal life, to be fully transparent with everything that's going on in our world in the past couple of years, I don't know that I have ever been. Maybe it's because I'm just about to be 40. I don't feel like I've ever been more cognizant of the actual like condition of our world than I am right now. It's like the Lord could literally return in the next second, like right now. And and, and I just I, I praise God. I pray that God would continue to keep my mind and heart there because I'm sinful, probably more sinful than many of you in this room. And so I can be whisked away in my Monday morning routine and then I forget. Right. Unforgiven sin. The last part of this verse, Colossians tells us that in Christ we are given forgiveness of our sins. In other words, once we have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ, our our sins are forgiven. They were removed as far as the east is from the west, an infinite distance Prior to faith in Christ, our sins are not forgiven. You know, some people would argue that that's really mean. God's mean. (laughs) Like, what do you mean? Uh, The illustration we like to talk a lot about at TCC is this idea of a just judge. And I'll give you an illustration to define this. Some of you probably heard it. Let's say a horrible tragedy happens in your life and someone takes the life of one of your family members. And it takes, in our court system sometimes years to actually get them to trial and they build the jury and this judge who's supposed to be one incredible just judge is standing you know deliberating and you go through the whole trial and you're there and it's been a traumatic few days and obviously an awful few years and you know you're in it right 
And here's the day for the sentencing, and the judge's favorite meal is in the Instant Pot at home. And he's like, he's been going at it all day. His docket's full. He's starving. He's like, I don't have time for this. And so he just says, you're acquitted. You're free. And he sends this murderer out free. You would be livid. And you would never, ever, ever for the remainder of your life call that judge a just judge. You wouldn't. You'd say that is an unjust judge. He does not deserve to be in his or her position. And I don't want anything to do with him. I think they need to remove him, fire him. You'd file an appeal. Whatever you would do. Hope you wouldn't do anything more than that. You might want to. But then you need to say that to God. Okay. Uh, but all those things, all those things said, you, you, would, you would be outraged, right? Because that judge is given a job to carry out justice. You can't look at God and say that he's perfect and righteous and just if he doesn't carry out justice. But here's the good news, right? He provided a rescuer to pay for that justice. That's it. But we've got to see our human condition. So it governs our life. Sin governs our life. It determines our life. Not only does sin govern your life presently outside of Christ, but it also affects uh, the effects of your personal sin determine the outcome of your earthly existence. It's pretty simple. If you've not placed your faith in, the, in Christ, then the ransom his, of his life on the cross is not applied to you, and therefore you're eternally separated. However, the adverse is also true. If your sins are forgiven, they no longer determine the outcome of your life. Christ does. It's the amazing exchange that happens. <laughs> Simple truth. Sin governs your life now and determines the outcome of your life then. Christ came to set you free. Look at verses 36 through 37. Only the Son can set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. The sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. But the inverse is also true. If the sun doesn't set you free, you will not be free. We have a verse that is often comes up in our home. Um, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. Amy utilizes this with our girls a lot. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, they can hold no water. What is a cistern? You guys don't know what that is? You don't use those at home? Um, it's a large tank or, you know, pottery, a uh, piece of pottery, in this case, uh, to store water in, okay? And so, obviously, they would boil that to cook and this, and that, and the other. Um, our family loves the beach, and so uh, the way I thought of illustrating this to you, it'd be kind of silly if in the mornings, what we do is I'll generally take Lila and Lainey with me and we'll carry all the stuff, right? Because there's just a bunch of stuff with kids um, and I got a lot of them. So we'll take the umbrellas and the cooler and whatever else, the kitchen sink and the refrigerator and everything else. Whatever Amy says we need to take, you know, I'm taking down there and I'll have the girls get up with me and we'll take them all down. We'll go early in the morning and we'll kind of dig the hole. I'll dig the holes for the umbrellas and get the umbrellas in the ground. And one thing, if you don't know this, um, I want to say evil genius, but what's the genius genius trick? Crazy genius. Not evil genius is a documentary. Um, you should probably watch that too. Anyways, um, so so what helps in sand is if you add water to sand, it's more sticky, right? And so I'll tell Lainey and Lila, hey, go get a couple buckets and go down to the water and fill up those buckets and bring them back to me so that when I get them all pressed in, I can pour the water in and it sticks better. 
<laughs> would, it, would it help at all if I gave my daughters two buckets with holes in them? Of course not. It's pointless. Like, all the water would be gone by the time they came back. It does them absolutely no good, and it certainly doesn't do me any good. And at this point, I'm like hot and sweaty and ready to get out of the sand. You know, I'm ready to go get in the water, you know. So, in, in essence, Jesus is like, I am the fountain of living water. I fill your life, but you literally go and get broken pots with holes in them, and you keep filling them up. And so Lenny will look at the girls and say, you are so fired up about whatever it is, generally a device. And when we take that device away, it's like your whole world falls apart. You have filled a broken cistern with that, and it's leaking like a sieve. Your passions are directed in a a way that they should not be. There's an imbalance of priority in your passions. Is it wrong to play on a device? Yes. Just kidding. Um, I'm kind of old school. I hate them. But no, it, it is not. I'm, I'm just joking. But man, if, if your passions are that fully directed into something that is not of God, it's a broken cistern. So he says, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And a lot of times we're so distracted, we don't even notice that we're not free, right? It's hidden, potentially hidden really well. However, those shackles are secure. And they're clearly seen by those with spiritual eyes. This, this idea of being free, um, well-known commentator Bruce Milne, and I'll give them to you on the screen. He gives three phrases that were really helpful to me. And then I'm going to read a really long quote from him because it just rocked my world this week. So you're just going to have to humor me and get over it because I thought it was awesome. But the first thing he says is this freedom, this gift of freedom, it's a gift and not a pedigree right? It's not tied to our religious background. It's not tied to our succession. It's not tied to our race or our family or our class or anything else that is inherent in and of ourselves. It is literally a gift. Nothing any of those miners did in that collapsed cave had anything to do with how they were rescued. Secondly, it's eternal and not temporal. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He lives forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so when Jesus sets you free and he provides union between us and him, it's eternal. It's eternal life. The reason Christ can promise you eternal life is because he overcame death. He beat the grave. Thirdly, it's, an, it's outcome is expressed in obedience and not in independence. We talked about this a little earlier with being a true disciple of Christ. The true recipient of this gift becomes a loving, obedient child within God's family. Milne continues, he says, It was Martin Luther's insight that the human person is made to serve. He depicted the human will as a horse whose choices are limited to who will be its rider, whether God or the devil. The notion of the radically independent individual who can do as he or she may please without reference to any other authority, an image regularly celebrated in modern post-enlightenment culture, which, by the way, that's where you live if you don't know that, is in fact a man of straw. This free person is a myth who never existed and who never will. We are radically, incurably, and eternally dependent beings who were made to serve. Our freedom is not the freedom to do as we want but the freedom from being controlled by our fallen hearts to do as God wants, to do what we ought, and it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. So the Jews up to this point, they felt pretty spiritually secure, right? Why? Because of their line. We're God's chosen people. We're we're Jewish. 
Our lineage is, is what is securing us. In the words of D.A. Carson, Jesus is the only true son in this scenario. He is the only true son that gets to stay in the house. No one else does apart from his work. Physical descent is not sufficient. The Apostle Paul is actually really helpful to us in a couple of different places. Romans chapter 9, Galatians 4. In essence, he points out, and, and, and by the way, you know, Paul was a Jew, okay, and, and he calls himself the Jew of all Jews, right? There was no man that, in his words, followed the Jewish law the way that he did, and, and he would murder Christians and capture them because they were not Jews. And so here's Paul. He's talking from that vantage point. He, he basically says in Romans 9 and Galatians 4 that a Jew is and has never been a Jew if only one outwardly. Now, this is Paul saying this, okay? Instead, Paul says he or she must be a Jew inwardly. And this inward change, the Gentiles being grafted in to the kingdom of God, this inward change is only accomplished by circumcision of the heart. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Here's a simple truth. True freedom is only accomplished through a personal relationship with Jesus. You see how we've kind of woven our way down? It's a particular Savior. Jesus continues his interaction with a really clear statement that communicates where his message comes from. Look at verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, that might stick out to you. Your father, who's he talking about? Um, He's actually talking about Satan. If you read down through the remainder of this passage, um, you'll see Jesus literally says that their father is the devil because they do not listen and follow Jesus himself. So there's a purposeful stark contrast on Jesus's part. And I think it's because he wants to be really, 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 really clear, right? This is where the wheat is separated from the tares. Those that are saved and those that are not. There is no other fundamentally important distinction. That doesn't mean that you leave your culture and your likes and preferences, but fundamentally being distinct The only thing that we should focus on is in or outside the kingdom of Christ because that should define the rest of your life. Sin in the gospel is the ultimate equalizer. And I'm not saying that those things that I said earlier are not important, but we're made in the image of God. We are all equally sinful and apart from God on our behalf, entering in and working on our behalf. We're separated from him. So here's the rhetorical question. Has the truth set you free? Has the truth set you free? The truth of the gospel sets us free. And we require freedom from sin that enslaves us all. Only the Son, that is Jesus, can set us free. And true freedom is only accomplished through a personal relationship with him. We've kind of talked about how many distractions there are in this world and Satan would love to subtly distract, continually distract folks from, from coming to know him. Um, but it's, it's quite eye-opening in my own life, an exercise I try to do fairly regularly and just kind of step back and say, okay, what, what passions am I pursuing? Where's my money going? Most of the time it's food, just to be honest, because it costs $45 to feed my family at Wendy's. Um, but sometimes it's eating out a lot, right? Because we're just tired, you know? Sometimes it's another pursuit. But sometimes it's not just your money. Sometimes it's mind time. What, 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 what 
I'll, I'll take stock. What is taking my mind time right now? Is it just kind of like Netflix binge watching, which I'm sure you can imagine happens a lot in my life. Um, but maybe that resonates with you. Maybe it's, you know, school. Maybe you put school before everything. Maybe you put your job. I mean, I know with my job, I can pour 150% out of my job and then the Lord and my family get the leftovers. There's not much there sometimes, right? So I regularly take stock of what really gets my juices flowing. And if it doesn't come back to the Lord as its fundamental piece, I know something's out of balance. Here's the good news. That's okay. God's gracious. Because there's so much to distract us, it's sometimes very hard to see how sin controls us now and forever. So there's a couple ways. How do we respond? Here's my plea for those of you who don't have a relationship with Christ, who have never repented of your sins, who have never confessed Christ. The scriptures literally say repent and believe. That's what they say. This is an invitation from a holy and righteous God. Okay, This is not just an invite to my house for lunch, which could be cool too. John Payne says, God suffered an unspeakable wrath of God on the cross for the Christian that by grace through faith you would be fully accepted in the beloved. That's what this is about. He wants to set you free. Repent and believe. For some of you, you're already a Christ follower. Maybe your life is a little off the beaten track. Maybe you feel a bit backslidden. Um, Maybe it's maybe it's been a while since you feel like, as Jonathan Edwards would say, your affections have been placed on things of the Lord and your affections are pursuing things that are not of the Lord. Um, I want you to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. John Piper is pretty helpful in this area. He says the truth about our experience is that we all fail to live at the level of holiness that we know is fitting for a follower of Christ. We need to see how the same reality of imperfection turns up in the saints of scriptures and how they handled it. It's really cool. He's got this whole blog, and I'm going to give it to you in two sentences. Um, he, he moves to Psalm and shows Psalm 119. And the psalmist lays out, if you've never read Psalm 119, it's really amazing. He lays out the longest and most sustained act of praise and commitment to the word of God in all the scriptures. So Psalm 119 is the, is the longest and most sustained act of praise and commitment to God's word. But if you go read Psalm 119, the very last verse, it says that the psalmist has backslidden and gone astray. Even the Christian that is a follower of Christ, that is a disciple of Christ, that is fully committed to Christ, you're going you're gonna to fall. You're going to make mistakes. So maybe today the call for you is renewing that, asking God as Romans 1, or as Romans 1, as Romans 12 says, Renew my life as a sacrifice to you, Father. Forgive me for these areas. Reorient my passions. And through your grace and the power of the Spirit of God, bring me back to the light. Third, sometimes um, you, you will find yourself in a position of kind of indifference. Maybe things are going pretty well. Maybe your life is generally represented by what Christ has done in your life, and, and you kind of feel pretty good about things. Here's my challenge to you. Never find your, yourself in a place that is not humbled by the gospel. Never, ever, ever find yourself in a place where you think that everything's okay. Because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. The scriptures say resist him. That's a physical act. Like you, you need to resist the devil. But you also can do bad all by yourself, right? 
So the minute you think that you're self-dependent, that's a really dangerous place. So my challenge to you this morning is one of your pastors is don't find yourself there. Ask the Lord to, to remove you from there. Um, here, at, here at TCC, sometimes you may hear the word or the term sola de gloria. Um, if you're unaware of the translation from Latin, I love this term, but here's what it means in English. It means glory to God alone. And so that's my call to you, okay? I want you to leave here today giving glory to God alone, recognizing that apart from Christ, we were all shackled, but yet Christ has come to set us free. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the clarity of your word. I pray, Father, that the word would not return void to any heart or soul today, Lord, that the word would pierce our hearts, change our lives, some for the first time, some for the ongoing sanctification of the believer. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you do these things for your glory and for the good of your church. In Christ's name, amen.